Welcome to the Agency Exits Podcast. Today, I talk to Luke Tobin. And in this episode, you're going to hear about an agency that grew extremely fast and then bought some other agencies and then headed into an acquisition of its own. Luke goes through some of the mindsets that helped him break through barriers in increasing his retainers. He talks about what it's like to acquire other agencies. You're going to find a lot of nuggets in this one. It's faster. It's action-packed. So let's jump right in with Luke Tobin. Hey, Raj Ja here. I'm with Luke Tobin, the founder of Digital Ethos, which sold to Cadestra. He's also the CEO of Tobin Capital, which invests in startups and in tech companies. Welcome, Luke. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Yeah, great. So I have an interesting question to start out. So as I was doing some diligence on Digital Ethos, I understand you guys became a certified B Corp, and that is really interesting. Maybe start out by telling folks who might be not aware of what a B Corp is, what that is and why you chose to do it. And I think that would be a really interesting way to to kick off. Yeah, absolutely. The B Corp movement, as I call it, is a, it's actually an American accreditation that started, now it's global, to give businesses a set of rules to focus on, abide by, aspire to, to allow you to look at being a business of purpose, not just a business of profit. So really, you cover different modules, but there's things like sustainability, diversity, inclusion, all of your ESG elements are in there. And as a business, we, for a long time, have always tried to do our little bit, whether it's recycling or trying to do charitable days. The team get one day a year where they're able to go out and give back and support pro bono type projects. But the B Corp movement was a real opportunity to put our kind of line in the sand and say, well, actually, we want to be a business of purpose. We don't just want to be a business of profit. It's good to make profit. You need to make profit. But we really want to do something that's giving back to society, giving back culturally, but it's also sustainable. So that was why. And actually, we were the first B Corp in the Midlands region in the UK. So I was pretty proud of that at the time. That's really interesting. How did that affect the growth of the agency? I can see certainly as a hiring and retention tool, giving that kind of purpose to the kind of team member who would be very involved with that would be meaningful. Did it also have an effect on the client side? Because when you think about that, there's a, there's a purpose of the company. And then, you know, of course, there's a marketing purpose of that too. Is it going to attract certain kinds of people to you? How did that play out? Of course. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, decisions we make in business are, there's those two, two sides to it, isn't there? We knew that we wanted to move in a more kind of sustainable direction, but we also had started working with a few clients previous to that actually had introduced us to B Corp. And we thought, well, actually, there's a huge opportunity here to service and work with B Corp businesses. To be honest, off the back of the B Corp accreditation, I think we work with maybe 15 or 16 B Corp companies now. There is a real community hub to it. And I think early adopters of anything, you know, you tend to move in your tribes, you know, actually approaching those businesses, opening up conversations has actually been really easy and quite fluid for us. So yeah, no, it's been great. And actually from a recruitment perspective, employees, especially Generation Z, I think we all know need, again, a purpose and need something that's that's not just monetary driven. So it gives us, a, you know, again, the ability to attract good talent. So it's been all around a really good decision. So let me ask you, because I, I don't understand all the nuances of the B Corporation. What happens when you sell a B Corp? Because you've got these, as I understand it in the US at least, you've got these charter elements, which, you know, mm. we will only do X, Y, and Z. Now you're being acquired by another organization, depending on the format of the sale. What happens to that? I'm just curious how that technically works. Yeah. So with B Corp, you need to 
hit certain milestones each year in order to stay accredited. The new owners will have a choice, right? They need to, mm -hmm. to still hit those levels or they would effectively lose the license. And you know, that would be their choice. You can't merge a B Corp business with a non-B Corp business. You would have to put the other B Corp business through the accreditation. So it would very much just be a choice driven thing. So with Cadastra acquiring Digital Ethos, we decided to take Cadastra, much bigger entity globally, on that journey we're in the process of it typically takes 12 18 months or so to get through the questionnaire whatever it can be a little bit quicker but there are some waiting times at the moment so yeah taking them on the journey but they've got kind of 1300 1400 staff 17 offices it's a total different beast to get through but yeah we'll get there it sounds like you bit off a big project with that one exactly yeah massively yeah massively yeah great maybe tell me a little bit about the journey of digital ethos because it, it sounds like you had a pretty rapid growth pace and then the acquisition. I'd be yeah. really interested to hear more about how that works and what you think some of the drivers were for being able to be acquired by what is, you know, by all accounts, one of the biggest in the world. Mm -hmm. Really, what does that, what drove towards that? Yeah, I think going back to the, the foundation of the agency and my background is very much in commercial sales, marketing, always a marketing spin in every role that I've had, but always quite heavily focused sales based. And I think you get a lot of agencies and certainly when I sort of scoped the competition and looked at how we could try and stand out, I mean, you would, there's 28,000 agencies in the UK, 28,000. I mean, it's unbelievable. In the States, God knows, you know, hundred and something thousand, but it's crazy. So you are in a very saturated space. So how do you stand out? So the research I did, I could see that a lot of the the operators or the owners of agencies, certainly, you know, mid-tier or smaller agencies were discipline-led. So they came from an SEO background or they came from mm -hmm. a PPC background or they're a creative and they had a, you know, an idea like everybody else, oh, I'll set up my own agency and they start working with a few mates and then they get a few projects, gets a bit bigger. They tend to get to a certain size and then plateau because they don't have that sales drive or ability to keep acquiring more customers. I came at it almost from a kind of reversed angle. So I came at it from that sales driven model from day one. Within the first kind of you know year or so, we went from zero employees to 15, and then we went to 30, and then we went to 45, and then we went to 60. And you know over, over the, the kind of five year period up to the sale, yeah, around 60 to 80% year on year growth. So it was pretty rapid, quite quick. And I think a lot of that was on customer acquisition and having that kind of sales mindset really is really what's helped to separate. But again, we're all selling the same products. So how do you stand out? Exactly. That consultancy element, it's the, you know, I could fluff on about that all day, but really what's, what helped us, I always say it to the team as well, new revenue fixes all problems. We really went hard and we were very good at acquiring new customers. I talk a lot to agency owners who have plateaued, right? They have not yeah. had that year on year growth. And even if you have a sales focus, there's also the question of who are you selling yeah. to and how are you packaging that offer? So what did you do to choose a, a target market? Because it, yes, thousands and thousands of agencies, but some of them are attempting to sell to SMBs who have very little money. Some are attempting to mm -hmm. sell to F500s where there's a procurement process, which is painful and threading yeah. that needle and finding that right, right fit client for the right fit service is the key. How did you think about that and approach that? Yeah. And we, I'll be honest, we didn't always do it right. So we've tried to sell to all of those personas that you've mentioned with varying success. So when we started, we were selling to those SME customers because actually 
we realized if you packageize something for around a thousand pounds, you can go out and you can sell it pretty easily. You know, some weeks we were selling, you know, five, six new customers a week, other times, you know, 20 a month. I think that cycle of sales was good, but dealing with that amount and that volume of clients that have quite high expectations and we all know the pain of this, it was really challenging. And then you're on that seesaw effect of right. if sales are doing well, something down here is going to fall off, right? Because you haven't got the delivery team to keep up with the demand and you haven't got the, so we definitely didn't do all of that right, but we were able to bring in those customers. But then slowly over time, we started creeping up the values. And that would mean that we'd lose some more down here, the smaller end, but then our average retainer sizes then ended up at three grand, then five grand. And then more recently, we now sit more on that kind of five to 10,000 pound a month range. We have some enterprise clients that are paying you know, a couple of hundred grand a month. So there is a real diverse mm -hmm. piece, but that's come with reputation. It's come with case studies. It's come with kind of cutting our teeth on all of those levels to understand where we really want to want to play. And I think that the sweet spot for us has been in that kind of middle medium mm -hmm. size business tier. You know, they might have a marketing manager internally, which is great, maybe a small team, but they can't do it all. They don't want to do it all and they have to outsource some of it to us. And that's really where we found a sweet spot. Okay, that's interesting. So I talked to, a bunch of folks and they all do the same thing. And I did the same thing. It's like, I started out really low. I literally started at $595 a month. I'm like, oh, this is painful. And then I went to 1500 and then 2,500. And then I was like, this is still painful. Okay. 5,000. Okay. 7,500. Okay. 30,000. And you go, th everyone does this walk. And I think you said something that's insightful, which is you cut your teeth at each level. But at least my perspective, and I'd like to hear yours is you're cutting your teeth more operationally and confidence wise than you yeah. are anything else. Because if I did it again right now, I'd be, well, I'm starting at 20 grand a month because mm -hmm. just you realize that the economics of that engagement are so much easier to manage. And those clients are so much easier to manage than a $1,000 a month client. But I'm interested to hear on your perspective, now that you've done it, how would you approach it with the knowledge you have today? And if you are, if you were at $1,000 a month and haven't run a you know, a thousand dollar a month client and you haven't run a large organization, do you have to cut your teeth or can you jump a few levels? I think you can jump. And I think it's, it is confidence. It all comes down to the only thing that holds back agencies is probably the confidence in the owner, the management team, the leadership team that are driving it, right? If you come out the gate and I think there's always a, an element of thinking, well, I don't have the case studies. I don't have the backup, but if you can go in and speak confidently about your solution and you can find a buy and you can find that first customer at that price point, you can prove, you can prove it. Even if you have to do something, you know, tiered pricing, whatever, just to get that mm -hmm. first client in at that level and then the rest will follow. Right. So that kind of, you know, build it and they will come type mentality. And I think it's, you know, it is really important. And on this topic, I was in the pub the other day and it's, it's funny, I, there's another agency owner there and he turned around to me and goes, well, you know, if you did it again, you probably wouldn't be as successful. And I was like, really? I said, that's, it's interesting you say that. Cause if I did it again, I actually think I'd be more successful because I would just come at it now with the knowledge of, I know what I need to do. But I think there's, it's interesting that people can see those different things. And I think for him, he's thinking, well, I need to cut my teeth. I need to go through it. And that's at some point you get a bit of luck and then all of a sudden you manage, but it's not that right. It's, you can be very calculated about this. And I think for anyone out there that's thinking, okay, well, how do I raise my prices? You've got a customer base, you've got some stability, just do it, right? Just start selling to new customers at a price point that you want to feel comfortable at. I started refusing price. I, when I each made the leap to the next price range, I just said, I'm, I refuse to take any customers. It forced me to go out and hunt for more of those. But the mm -hmm. fact is, it's, if you have a $1,000 a month client and then you're looking for $5,000 a month clients, it's not five times harder to get them. 
No, and no, it's not. So it, it, the, the sales velocity actually picked up when we started doing large to a point, right? Once you're crossing mm-hmm. the 15,000-ish mark, then, you know, it's yeah. a longer sales cycle. But I think the, yeah, I think the, the concept of just keep on grinding at it and someday you'll be lucky enough to be <laughs> able to do that doesn't seem like you're really taking control of your own destiny there. No, it doesn't. It definitely doesn't. No. So tell me about the, the team aspect of growing the agency. Obviously a big piece of being able to grow that fast is being able to hire the right people, get them in the right seats, have the right kind of middle management built. And I think that's a challenge for mm. a lot of folks, you know, certainly around, I think the million dollars to million and a half dollars of revenue. There's one break point there I often see. And then there's the three to $5 million zone. And each one of these things, it's like the, it feels like the wheels are falling off the bus and mm you somehow stumble through or you get enough revenue to be able to hire people. So how do you think of that process of finding talent to help you grow? Because at a certain point, you cannot know everything. So how do you think about that? No, it's, it is as a service business, right? Selling time for money, you are reliant on the right personnel. That's basically what people are buying, right? That is the business. So that is the difficult thing. I think if you're lucky early on, you get in that first up to that first million, as you say, you maybe have 10, 15 people that become excellent almost like a family at that size aren't you you're doing late nights you're you know people are happy to put in the graph they're building something they feel part you know you're all part of something really cool and new and fresh when you get up to kind of 25 30 people as the owner as the director you can't be around all those people you can't have the same impact you start putting mid-management tiers in place it does create lots and lots of fracture points and i think for us, I mean, there was no easy way of getting through it, right? We were having to hire people at times. We were hiring six, seven new people a month at one point. I think we were fortunate enough to have it to have happened pre-pandemic because now with the great resignation, everything else that's happened, my God, finding talent is so hard that I'm just for, I'm grateful actually that that <laughs> happened then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because geez, wow, it is tough out there. But yeah, we were just having to hire lots of recruitment fees. I ended up with a full-time recruiter internally, just you know, getting people in and you don't always get it right. When you're rush hiring like that, mm-hmm. speed hiring again, you know, you bring in a few people that can poison the chalice a bit and then departments or entire teams can end up not working or functioning. But yeah. I mean, I don't think there's a clear cut answer for that for us. It was just bloody hard work. It was really tough, but we did, we did come through it. And I think that's, again, it's that confidence piece, right? Going into that again now, or if I was, you know, listening to this and I was a, a an agency at certain one of those fracture points, you can plow through it. You've just got to have the confidence to realize that glass ceiling is only made of glass and Mm -hmm. it will smash. You'll find a way up and you'll find another level. So as you're doing this, how did you think about revenue generation and profitability versus hiring? Because agencies are always in that range of, I am getting better profits, but I'm working like crazy because I don't have the staff, but then I'll hire them. And that's coming straight out of my pocket as the owner you know, one time my margins are 3% and then I hire, you know, they're 3% because I've hired a bunch of people and then I get more work and then great, that's 30, 40% margins. Oh, I got to hire again. How did you stair step that up without going crazy or taking big bets where you hired Mm. someone and the sales didn't come in to support it? It, That is, it's really hard. I think there was times when we got it right and times when we got it wrong. I think for us, and I even have this mentality now, I always would rather have the resource available now than not. So for a long time, we ran with one foot dragging behind us with not enough staff to deliver the work. But the problem is you work so hard on bringing in those clients, you sell them the dream, you get them on board. 
it's dead easy to lose that trust and lose that relationship, right? So early on, and if I look back now, I think a lot of the clients that we brought in, even the right fit clients that we didn't keep, now we would retain them. They'd love us, you know, it would be a great mm -hmm. place for them. But then it wasn't because we just weren't able to service them at the levels we wanted. So I think, again, that's a bit of experience talking now. I, I would rather probably hire a little bit ahead and always have that buffer so that the team aren't overworked. But at the time, we were flogging the team. And I feel, you know, I feel eternally awful for it. And I've had conversations with some previous personnel. So I'm like, God, guys, I'm really sorry. I know it was hard. But it was hard work. It was bloody hard work. But, you know, we, we just had to do it to get through that stage. But now we do try to hire ahead and we keep the kind of billable rates at a manageable level to allow for creativity time and all that sort of stuff. But when you're scaling up, you can't always do it. So I think the answer there in a rounded way is, you need to sweat the team to allow yourself to have enough margin to continue the growth journey, but you have to take risks, right? And take risks on good people. Don't let good people go just because you're worried about an extra couple of grand here or there. Keep the right people around you and they should be worth their weight in gold. Yeah, it's interesting. The, the agency that acquired mine had a really interesting way of thinking about margins, which I had never thought of before. And it works for them, which is they would think if my margins are getting too fat, I have to look really hard about whether or not I'm delivering enough for the client mm. because they acquired mine and, you know, I had 40% margin. So I had really good margins and I looked yeah. at them and at one point they're running, you know, 5%, 10% margins way larger mm. than I was. Mm. But they said, well, we have this band and we never let our margins get below X because we're a people business and we're a cash flow business. And we never let them go above Y because that's an indicator, a leading indicator that we might not be delivering enough for the client. Now, I'd never thought about that way. I'm not sure I 100% buy it, but I just thought it's an interesting way of thinking about, oh, if my mm. margins are too fat, am I under-delivering so that the client might go somewhere else? It's a really interesting way of looking at it, yeah. Yeah, and you know, my buyers, they have a set kind of margin that they aspire to across the group, around 15% mm -hmm. a year. And, but for me, that, that sounded low as well. It still does. Cause I was always operating at 25 to 30, you know, some years were a bit higher. So similar to yours, but I think at scale, you know, if you can still achieve 15%, it's happy days. You should have enough personnel then in the business to deliver the work, please the clients, all the rest of it. So I can definitely see why that logic's there. Yeah. And I suppose the corollary to that is as you scale margins go down because you're inserting, you know, more management, there is more communication. You just yeah. need time, staff time to do that. But I think a bunch of owners don't always know that decreasing margin means that when you double your agency, you're not making twice as much usually. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah. it's a nonlinear yeah. increase in your own take home because the big payday for growing it is the exit. It is mm -hmm. not necessarily the increased cash flow. It's a little bit of both. It is. And there's an interesting parallel to the exit analogy as well, right? If you look at the multiples and you look at that kind of growth, so you get to a certain point as an agency where you can sell with those high margins and exit with a reasonable multiple at that level, or you can push through for another few years. But actually the take home sometimes isn't actually too dissimilar because you've gone through and had to bring in all this extra stuff. You've got HR managers now, you've got like, all of right. a sudden, if it's based on margin, then, or profitability, you know, you actually, your take home can be different. So you have that decision to make, right? Which is why after five years, I was like, okay, well, I think, you know, I'm in a good place now and I'm still involved in the business. I'm still driving yeah. it, but I wanted to take some of that risk off the table and be part of something a bit different. Yeah. Interesting. So when you started thinking about maybe now is my time, what were some of the drivers of that? You said you take some tips off the table. Was it that I don't want to do this for another five years to get to that next break point? Or was there something else going, you know, for, for me, it was, you know what, and this happens to me in 
this happened to be on multiple businesses. I didn't feel like I was being a good dad. And I was like, mm. you know what? I am too obsessed with this. I need to step back. And that was not the reason I sold, but that started me down the path of thinking, I think this is something I want to do. Yeah, I was holding on very tight as well. I was working way too many hours and probably being way too involved in all the departments with the managers and everything else. And I think this, the stress levels at times were really intense. And I hadn't actually thought about selling. It was very reactive. I had a few approaches. I acquired two businesses myself in 2021. And then off the back of that, I actually launched in Germany and in Toronto as well, did a lot of activity in 2021. And that kind of put me on the map a bit. A lot of offers started then flowing in. And I think the deal flows in 21 were really high anyway, and into, you know, certainly first half of 22. So there was a lot of activity and people were super interested. I hadn't thought about it. As soon as you start having the conversations, you think, well, actually, okay, yeah, maybe I can de-stress a bit here. I can still be part of the journey, but with a different footing. Yeah, it was, it just made a lot of sense to me. So you mentioned you did a couple of acquisitions yourself. Tell me how that yeah. came about and how, how you thought, okay, uh, at what point were you and why did you say, I want to do this? Because they were geographically dispersed. Mm. You're growing the footprint versus growing in the single location. You know, what led you to that strategic decision and what role did that play in the overall growth? Yeah, so I did four, I did four things, four key things, I guess, around that in 2021. First of all, we needed a creative division. We needed to do more creative work. We were very much a performance agency at that point, And we really wanted to have the creative skill set in-house. We've been outsourcing. We weren't getting the quality that we wanted, often delayed, you know, and it was hurting clients. So we acquired a, a creative agency in Manchester that gave us kind of eight, nine people just to add in, bolt in, which we, we merged into the existing business and called that our creative team department which it still is today there was another web design business that was local to the head office that we thought okay well they were in a bit of a fire sale they needed a bit of help they had a few developers we thought okay we can house you so that was the other acquisition so they were very skill set driven more than anything else really because trying to go out and hire those 13 14 people across the two businesses would have been difficult to get right but actually they had some good clients and we bought them in the other two bits that we did then was launched in germany and launched in canada and both of those were client driven so we had a few clients in each market that were like hey you know it'd be great if you had some local footprint and some operations here and we were like well okay we'll look into it could be a good option if you can help us with case studies and help mm -hmm. us off the back of it so again it was quite reactive but we found a partner agency partner creative a videography business in hamburg in germany that was happy to partner up and be our feet on the ground their sales machine their sales guys that were going out selling video started selling seo and ppc mm -hmm. and we started getting some people there so that that was good i mean it was in the end that kind of fazzled in Germany, to be honest, the language piece and right. Brexit and all this stuff happening at the same time was a challenge, but we still have a few clients there today. And I think revenue wise, it's covered its face, but it wasn't a success. Canada, we have maybe half a dozen clients or so still, and we're still growing there. We have a sales guy on the ground, works purely as a freelancer, just sends us a few bits here and there. And that's been nice because that was a very soft, light touch way of getting into that market. And again, gave us that foot on the map. And more than anything, this optically, to the outside world was enough to draw some eyes. And that right. then generated, obviously, the opportunity to have the conversations around acquisition. So how did you manage all of that? Because, you know, if someone's thinking, oh, I want to grow and growth by acquisition is, I mean, it's a fantastic way to grow because you just, you get mm -hmm. a ready-made team, not to under, under <laughs> weight how hard it is to do an integration properly. But it's also a lot of effort for the, you as the leader to go out you know, I don't know if you were sourcing those deals or what have you, but mm. source them, negotiate them. Most of them don't go through. Think, tell me about that effort 
compared to I'll just grow organically or I'll open another office with my existing resources. How did you weight that? Yeah, I mean, at the time, if I look back now, some of it wasn't actually that smart. Some of it played out pretty well, but a lot of it was opportunistic. It was exciting. I think for the mm -hmm. team, the morale, like it was exciting, right? We're internationalizing, we're acquiring, we're, we had an amazing, you know, run out of COVID. We made lots of profit. And it was like, okay, cool. Let's try and just really explode here. Let's do this. We've got the blueprint. We know what works. We can copy this internationally. It's not going to be a problem. It can be easy. How hard could it be? How hard could it possibly be? <laughs> yeah, it came with lots of learnings, lots of sleepless nights, lots of stress, lots of flights. And in hindsight, I, you know, I think one of the takeaways for me is if I could go back, I would have done the two acquisitions in the UK. I wouldn't mm -hmm. have launched the overseas markets because I think if you're going to do that, really, it needs me on the ground in those markets to help drive it, or certainly some people from senior leadership that you can trust to be there to drive it. I went over, spent a bit of time in Toronto. In those trips, we managed to sell the clients that we have today. Outside of that, it's been very sporadic. It's not been very, mm -hmm. very good. So yeah, the takeaways there are spent a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of effort into some of the wrong things. So keeping the momentum and that focus on what's working is, mm -hmm. is the key, right? So yeah, the takeaways there would be I should have just focused on the UK market, but I'm glad that I've got the experience of trying those other things. Well, and like you mentioned, it attract, it ultimately attracted more attention. So it did. And, that's, and I suppose the other thing, and I'm getting this sense from your journey that it's very much a momentum play. If you say, if you think yes. about it that way, you've got sales, new sales are running in, you're hiring people. It's exciting to be at a company that's growing, not just for you, yeah. but for the team. And when you say, oh, we're doing these acquisitions, they feel like there's something, they're part of something bigger, similar yeah. to the B Corp stuff that you're doing. So you're giving people meaning and purpose and the feeling of success, mm -hmm. which, which I think is, it's a little bit like a drug, right? Because they're yeah. going to want to do a great job for the clients. They're, they're leaning into the work versus mm -hmm. you let the agency go a little bit static and you're not, you don't really that have that forward momentum and all of a sudden it's five years and nothing's changed. Yeah. Uh, things start to get ossified. Exactly. That's, that is so many interviews that we do here. And actually, if I think back to some of my senior leadership team, our operations manager, Jess, she'd been at another agency for six or seven years and that's exactly what had happened. It had been when she first got there, all promise and lots of opportunity. Six years later, same size, a lot of the same clients, you know. Right team members changing up, but nothing was really changing. Nothing was happening. And that agency has been going for 16, 17 years, has basically been the same forever. People in this space, and especially if you're hiring different levels of uh, and age ranges, they need that momentum. They need that excitement, I think, to drive it. And that's certainly been a way that we've been able to attract good talent, which again mm -hmm. has then brought us good clients. Yeah. Right, right. And so when you were trying to attract that good talent, what was the story that you would tell? Because I, when I think about hiring somebody, I think about you're telling a story of a future that could be and their role in making that true. So what mm. was the story that you were telling those team members to recruit them for the cause? Yeah, absolutely. I and mean, we were telling them, you know, the facts. So the facts were about the growth rates and where we were. Team growth. I think people were, we look at some departments, we launched new products. So we hadn't had the creative team we said, okay, we're going to buy a creative team and we're going to basically build on that. Do you want to come in and be our creative manager for that? Hell yeah, I'm in. And then we'd have, you know, our paid team would be growing out. We're like, okay, we want to split it now from paid media into buying. We want, we need leaders for this. Do you want to come in and lead that? Yeah, I do. So we just, we used the momentum that we already had 
and the promise of the direction, the growth and the size that we wanted to be in order to attract the talent. And then obviously other little ele elements in there from the international play to, to, to B Corp are all very attractive to people. But yeah, no, uh, that was the focus really. That's great. So tell me, maybe if we can dive into your acquisition a little bit and talk about things that were unexpected, things that you might not have known would happen. Like you go into it if you're doing your first acquisition on the sell side and mm. there's a whole bunch of stuff you don't know. There's this, very often this asymmetry of information. The buyers bought other agencies before. They know how this play works. Yeah. You don't. They've got a lot of the leverage unless you've got multiple bids. And even then, once you're locked into one, you know, you're stuck for a period of time. Yeah. Uh, what do you wish you'd known either two years in advance so you could fix some things or going straight into it? I'd love your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think preparation is key, right? So I think if I was building another business from the ground up today, there would be a data room from day one where I just kept on top of stuff and I knew... I had everything in order because doing that retrospectively is time consuming and quite stressful. I think what I didn't expect, and I don't know why, probably naively, is just how much of my attention, energy and time it would take. And as although you get, you know, fairly big gaps, sometimes a few weeks in between calls or stuff that's happening and in that process, you have these initial coursing sessions and then, you know, you get an offer and then there's, there's a, there is time, but it's, it's all you think about, right? So that then distracts you from the day to day and what you're doing. And at the time you can't necessarily tell your whole leadership or management team about what you're up to because you don't want to displace them in case it doesn't happen. And so right. it's quite a lonely, it's quite a lonely place to be. So I think I would have probably knowing that now, I think I would have liked to have probably had a bit of a, an understanding of what that would look like. Maybe have a couple of people close to me within the business that I could have pulled in for the journey a little bit sooner that would have been quite good and definitely just preparation right having the right data room and really thinking about because I, again I didn't go out to market and try and find somebody they found me mm -hmm. really thinking about what the right suitor or the right fit the right chemistry looked like because to start with when someone comes along and says here's an offer for to pay some money for your agency you're a bit like oh wow okay someone wants to buy me this is awesome <laughs> and it might be different for you because you, you obviously built and sold some other businesses but you know i had a couple of small exits super small exits when i was younger but this was like the first big payday and i was like okay cool you know i think again just being able to keep your feet grounded through the process is important as well yeah, I think one of the things that people underestimate, like you said, is how much mental space this takes up. Yeah. I, and if you are still involved, the more you're still involved, especially in sales, and also are trying to sell the business, mm -hmm. it's very easy to take the foot off the gas. I was it involved in, on the buy side on another acquisition, and we put in an offer. And the owners of the business, they got the offer, and then it looks like they just mentally thought they already had the money. They took the they took their foot off of the gas and like revenues plummeted like thirty percent during the negotiation. We're like at the end of this, I don't think I want this thing anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's very easy to get into that trap. So I, it it sounds it like is. you had enough of a management team to keep the wheels on the bus because you've yes. grown enough. Yeah, yeah. Thank God because you know over that five year period there were there was until probably year three four I didn't have that kind of that model of the senior leadership. I had managers, but like senior leaders that I could really rely on that if I wasn't in the business or God forbid, I, you know, something was happened to me, they could still be running the thing day to day. We just about got that in place by the time the acquisition journey started. So yeah, I'm very thankful for that as well. But I think if you're thinking about selling and going to market, I think making sure you have those key people in place is part of that kind of planning journey, isn't it? To get yourself prepared.
Yeah, and I think it's two aspects of it. If you are not prepared to sell and you don't have those people in place, it's also going to impact the multiple that you get. Because they're going to see you don't have that second layer of management. They're going to ask the question. It's, okay, well, Luke, when you go away, what happens? And all of a sudden, if they're like, oh, I'm essential to this business, then your earnout is going to look really crappy in comparison to a strong leadership team where you have options. You can choose to continue to work for the acquirer or you could say, I'm out. Yeah, yeah, 100%. 100%. Yeah. So it, in terms of what does the transition look like for you? Because you're still, you know, you're still working for the acquirer and you got an opportunity to focus on the things that you wanted to focus on. What does mm. that look like for you and that, that change? Because I think a lot of the agency owners who've exited I've talked with, life is very different before and after, right? Mm -hmm. The weirdest part of being done is there's no paycheck coming in, right? Even though there's a mm -hmm. lump of money that I got, there's no paycheck mm -hmm. coming in and that just felt weird and it felt wrong and mm -hmm. it felt like this desperation. It's like, oh, all of a sudden there's no paycheck, which is the dumbest way of thinking, but it happens. Like how, mm -hmm. what was that transition like for you? How has it changed your, your outlook on what you're able to do? You, you're working with, you know, on Tobin Capital now, so you're you know, doing other things as well. Mm -hmm. Talk a little about that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for me, the kind of deal of the arrangement was always that I would stay on sort of work as co-CEO for EMEA and Kadasha have got huge ambitious plans over the next few years, right? They'd love to do an IPO depending on where the markets are, really. I think they'll get to the level they need to from a revenue perspective to do it through a bit of organic growth, but also, you know, buying a few more agencies in the way. So an IPO is exciting. I like the idea of being on a board for that journey and having, you know, the exposure to that, something that on my own, I hadn't been able to achieve. So I think that's something that's very exciting. So I'll definitely be here for that journey and to help mature that. So the paycheck's still coming in for now, which is great. And the chunk of cash, which is good. So I haven't had that, haven't had that kind of, that, that uh, separation yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I haven't had that separation yet. But yeah, no, it's, it's good. And I'm very excited about what we can build together. And it, you know, who knows after that three, five year period, whatever it is, we'll see, we'll see where the land lies. But for now, it's very much, you know, still pushing, still grinding, but it has done. And since the deal completed, is there is like a weight that's lifted off me, right? So I'm actually back mm -hmm. to enjoying it again. I think for a long time, I was trying to keep the wheels on. And like, certainly in that year and a half of kind of courting for the deal, because I first spoke to Kadashra a year and a half before we actually signed the paper. And then mm -hmm. there was kind of touch points in between, you know, trying to hold on tight thinking, okay, you know, you lose a client, you're like, shit, we need to go and win another client. Like, how, you know, yeah, there was a tightrope walk at times. And that was very stressful yeah. coming out of that and now being part of something bigger with big plans and being able to add my part to that is actually really exciting again. I feel like it's invigorated me. The other thing that I'd started before the deal as well, or before the deal completed was Tobin Capital about three years ago, initially a little bit of advisory work for startups, scale up companies quite often for free. Sometimes they took a little bit of equity my way, sometimes a bit of cash. And then I decided to start a small fund. So I put, you know, modest amount of money in put little bits into a few startups a couple of them have done pretty well and that's just grown over time and obviously getting some exit money as well has meant that i've been able to fund that a little bit more and do a few more strategic plays but most of it's passive you know right now so it's you know it doesn't take a huge amount of my time you know a few hours here and there a month you know but but that's nice that keeps that entrepreneurial side of me whilst my day-to-day has become quite corporate now in a bigger organization it keeps that entrepreneurial flair alive mm -hmm. which i like 
Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the biggest things. So after I, I sold, I started just on the side as I want to learn about this e-commerce thing. So I started an e-commerce company just like, oh, I'll just spend a few hours a week doing this. And the thing's actually taking off and it's doing well as a complete awesome. not accident. But I wouldn't <laughs> have had the mental room to do it if I was still running the agency. Because I, yeah. during the agency time, I had all these ideas like, oh, we can make the software to do this, do that. But there's always some fire that yeah. stopped me from doing that because I really hadn't grown to the size where I had a person I could say, okay, you're my head of R&D who's going to do this. Yeah. So getting that space and being able to say, oh, I can plant all these seeds and some of them will sprout is one of the most fun parts about being on the other side. I can imagine that. I can imagine that. Yeah, I look forward to that day sometime. And for the time being, you know, Tobin Capital lets me kind of feed a few other people's dreams and yeah. see that. But yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Agency life, there are always fires. Every day there's something else you've got to, you've got to douse. And people, more people, more problems, right? So yeah, it's, but that's the adventure. That's the that's why the opportunity is there as well. Not everyone can do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, one last thing I wanted to ask you before mm. I think I wrap up, because you mentioned something about how you knew the acquirer, but still it took about 18 months from when you met them to when they closed. And I think you and I earlier had a conversation about unrealistic expectations of agency mm. owners, both in terms, in the context of our last conversation about multiple valuation, mm -hmm. then also about how long it takes to sell. Because I've heard more than a few stories about someone saying, okay, well, I, I want to sell. And then this now, right? Maybe there's a life situation. I was talking to an agency owner, Paul, and his wife went ill and uh. he needed to sell quickly. I mean, he had only a number of months with her and he thought that, okay, I can snap my fingers and an acquisition just happens. And the fact is, I know, you know, that just doesn't happen. Maybe you could talk through your experience on what agency owners should expect in terms of time and what they should yeah. expect in terms of multiple and valuation, which mm. I know changes over time. And we're in a, you know, if you asked, if I asked you this a year ago, those numbers would be different, yeah, but yeah. maybe what your perspective is on it now. Yeah, absolutely. I think probably from a time frame perspective, it really varies. If you're lucky, you can probably turn something around inside six months, right? But only if you're lucky and if the buyer is really motivated. Certainly from my experience and people that I've spoken to, I think typically nine, 12 months is probably a bit more realistic. Mine was longer because I had a few people approach me. I wasn't really sure that I wanted to sell. And it was in a period where I'd just done a couple of acquisitions. I was very hot on the heels of everything I was doing. So I just kept them a little bit arm's length, kept the conversation, didn't get too, you know, I was like, no, I think I'm worth a little bit more, you know, come back to me when you're ready to increase the offer a bit. And there was, you know, a little bit of that. Also, I liked the guys a lot, but I think I just, I lacked that bit of confidence at the time to really just jump straight into it. I wasn't sure it was the right thing for me. And then it got to maybe six, seven months later, and I kept thinking about the conversation. I kept feeling about the synergy, and I thought, well, okay, let's go back. And even then, when we said, okay, cool, let's crank this up now, and let's really go for it, it was like another nine months. And that's, be that's because, you know, at the size they are, they've got other acquisitions they're doing, they've got other things happening, you know, their legal teams don't, you know, so they're not in the same rush that you are always right. so i think yeah i think the time thing is very tricky best opportunity six six but probably 12 months is realistic and then from a multiple perspective yeah i mean some of the multiples that some of the agency owners i know want to achieve is completely unrealistic i think if you can 
I think typically people used to say four or five times is, you know, you do it, you do, you're doing okay. I think it's slightly different sometimes depending on markets as well. But I think if you can negotiate, you know, something around the average, but then have a really good earnout package, know that it's an achievable one as well. What I found with the earnout is it's important for you to help set the benchmark for that as well. Yeah. Part of that, that process, not just accept the numbers that are given to you. It needs to be in line with what's been achieved previously, but also allowing for economic change and the things we're going through now, right? You know, if I was just still focusing on a 60, 70% a year growth rate, it'd be, you know, right now it would be extremely difficult. It's slash impossible to achieve. Yeah, I think just have realistic expectations when it comes to that as well. But yeah, it's always going to be longer than you think it's going to be. And you might not earn quite as much money as you think you might be worth. But I think try and find a middle ground on both those things and you'll probably be all right. Yeah. And then going back to what you said, you'd start a data room from day one if you were doing this again. Absolutely. If you do that, you are so much further ahead because you know what the gaps are. So data room and your team and all of those things, then you can start it and do it on the fastest path possible. If on the other hand, you wake up one day and say, I want to sell this thing and nothing is ready. You've got six months, 12 months of just getting it ready. Before exactly. you can even have those conversations, you know, it can be a three-year journey or it can be nine months, a year if you're already prepared. So just yes. having yeah. that in mind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But preparation is key in everything in life. Right. But if you wait for this thing, yeah, absolutely. So that you can still keep running the business and keeping an eye on the day to day. I think it's important to, to try and just save yourself a lot of time later on by being organized. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, Luke, this is fantastic. I think you've given so many nuggets about how you managed to grow really fast and some of the mindsets, I think, and the confidence that, that an agency owner needs to have in themselves in order to do that. So this has been super valuable. I appreciate Thanks. it. Where can people find you, find out more about what you're doing and uh, maybe get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. Probably LinkedIn is the place I'm most active. So it's Luke T. Tobin. So Luke T. Tobin, that's the handle. You'll find me on there. Alternatively, you know, tobincapital.co.uk as well as another option. Awesome. Fantastic. All right. It's been great having you. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Cheers.